I've seen several people comment on this episode with something along the lines of it's hard to comment on this episode because it's not Star Trek. Basically the same general comments we got about family over in Season 4 of TNG. And I don't buy that personally. I think it's actually a pretty good episode. And, you know, I'm down. I actually rather enjoy this one. It's always a nice treat to see O'Brien doing something a little bit different than, you know, fixing something or whatever. Although, why did they get O'Brien for this mission? That's never explained, believe it or not. In fact, it's actually kind of illogical the more you think about it, considering how crucial his role is on the station, which is emphasized by the B-plot, brief though it is, and the fact that they had access to Bashir, who is probably going to be better at this type of thing. Anyways, moving on. Uh, so, in the original premise, this is actually going to be all about Jake, who wasn't actually part of the syndicate per se just kind of stumbled his way in by accidentally saving the life of someone important. So he kind of got in via that, and then he tried to get out. But meanwhile, Quark was trying to get in, and it turns out the whole thing was just a ploy anyways, which sounds interesting enough. The only thing that makes me kind of question this episode is it is a little bit predictable. That being stated, I do want to mention something. And I wrote this gentleman's name down, and I'm going to try really hard not to mispronounce it. Halden Daryl Allen Eastman. Now, he is the director who directed this episode. Now, if you're thinking, who the hell is that? I don't blame you. I try to point out Star Trek directors as we go, but I have never pointed out that name before. And I probably never will again. He's only directed three episodes of Star Trek ever. This one, Prey, over on Voyager, and Relativity, over on Voyager. I bring this up, though, because he does what I like to call the personal camera touch quite a bit where he, for lack of a better way to put it, humanizes the camera, as if it's literally the audience's viewpoint. Uh, probably the most obvious example of this is right at the beginning, where the camera's just kind of moving through the bar as people are talking, and then it kind of goes over O'Brien, and just a little bit, does a tiny little bit of a double take to, to focus right back onto O'Brien for a second, like, huh? Giving that kind of characterization to the camera. That's, that's kind of what I'm talking about. Uh, he's very fond of that technique, and I've seen him do it in all three of the shows I just mentioned. Uh, Relativity actually probably being the big, biggest example there. So it's good stuff. It's good stuff. So we see the guy's got like a chip that he uses to mentally hack into stuff. Very cyberpunk, actually. It's always nice when I see Star Trek introducing technology like this that makes perfect sense that you'd think they'd have more of. Even in this episode, they showcase how it's not completely overpowered, too. There's only so much he can do. He can only go so fast, and it also is a vulnerability point. So it's not like he can just magic hack his way through things. It just gives him another method to do so. I just thought that was pretty cool. I also liked... <sighs> the episode goes out of its way to showcase uh, what I would call the good, the bad, and the ugly. No pun intended. Of the Orion Syndicate. Because we see the good, that'd be Bilby. Uh, we see the bad, that'd be Ramius, or whatever his name was. And we see the ugly, which would be the guy who ends up getting shot for doing business on the sly. Do note they kill him just for not paying his dues, by the way. That's the, that's the Orion Syndicate in a nutshell. <laughs> nice organization. I gotta be honest, I don't know what he was thinking. Like, why wouldn't, why wouldn't you just pay your share, your dues? Do you think you're gonna get away with it? I, I don't know. I don't understand people. But then again, I also don't understand criminals. Go figure. Which brings me to my next point. 
I've noticed a trend, and I don't know if this is true in this episode, of some writers will write criminals as normal people, except they also kill. What I mean by that is the writer, when getting into the mindset of getting the personality and the tone and the inflection of the character out, writes them as if they are an ordinary person. And then there's a scene where they shoot someone. There's a disconnect there, in other words. Now, this boils back down to one of the old problems a lot of writers have had over the years. And this is going to sound strange, but it boils down to this. Believe it or not, most writers are not horrible people. And so writers have trouble, historically speaking, writing horrible people. In fact, a lot of historic, again, historically speaking, a lot of authors and writers of, of fiction across all genres have usually gone to real life examples of horrible people for, you know, for, uh, uh, inspiration for, to use as an example. Okay. That's what a horrible person is like. I'll use that. It's always just kind of been a weird, funny little thing, because after all, real life is always going to be more horrible than fiction, which, I mean, make of that what you want. <laughs> Anyways, point being, in this episode, they do that with Bilby quite a bit. And indeed, he actually does kill the guy, and then for the, for the entire rest of the episode, he is amiable and polite and nice. He's fierce, of course. Strong. He comes on strong, and in no way does he come across as someone who... Uh, you could walk all over, for instance. He, he definitely has a backbone. But he's also a decent guy in the way he is portrayed. It is no wonder that O'Brien, who is a very empathetic person in general, tends to empathize with him and wants to reach out to this guy and help this guy and was willing to build a case against him to send him to Federation prison because, as we've talked about many times, Federation prison is basically a holiday. Not that I'm complaining, by the way. Really. I, I am not complaining about that. In fact, I think it's one of the better aspects of the Federation. But you could see why that would be considered not much of a punishment. Not really. So, <laughs> there's a lot of good scenes between O'Brien and Bilby. It's a shame they couldn't get the original actor, but, you know, that doesn't work out all the time. I've heard a lot of people complain about the lack of the original actor. I don't buy it. I like the guy. Who plays Bilby? I can't remember his name. I'm going to look up his name because I forgot to write it down. Never write down names. That's me, the lore forgetter. <sighs> Nick Tate is the gentleman who wrote, the, uh, who wrote this. <laughs> who played Bilby. God, I just cannot talk today, can I? I swear I'm not exhausted. I'm doing the best I can, guys, I swear. Which brings me to my next point. One of the reasons I think O'Brien does work very well here is because he's very, very human. He is, in short, a very likable kind of person. Now, this is actually funny. If O'Brien was trying to get in good with someone like Ram Ramius, or Ramius, or whatever his name was, that probably wouldn't work. Because they're not decent folk. He could only get in good with someone like Bilby, who is only one step one step up the rung. You know, literally one step up from the very bottom. I could also talk about the theory that the higher up you get in a criminal organization, the more horrible of a person you become. But what I really want to talk about is the Dominion. Now, I hate to make my point about Waltz again, but this is yet another time in which Deep Space Nine goes out of its way to showcase a horrible, evil organization and or person, and then show how the Dominion is worse. In this case, 
I'm reminded most strongly of Iron Man 1. You remember that film? It's been a while. Uh, it's been about a year since I've seen it, for example, because I got to re-see it for the rumination. But in that film, this is a very minor spoiler for that film, in that film there's this horrible, evil, you know, underground criminal element organization, and they're bad guys, and they're roughly at, like, this competence level. Then there's the evil corporate mogul. He's up here. I've always enjoyed that trope in its own weird way. I know that sounds strange, but I've seen a lot of fiction do that, where even the best, most deadly, most powerful criminal crime lord or whatever is only ever going to be like high, high mid-tier. The really high-tier fish, the really big sharks in the pool, those are usually reserved for corporates or organizations or empires, right? And so in this episode we see that the Dominion is pulling the strings effortlessly of the Syndicate. We don't even know exactly what the Syndicate's getting out of this. Probably just money. But I'm left with another interesting question. So, first of all, there's the thematic presentation of the Dominion being even worse than the Syndicate. But here's a second question. How many changelings are on this side of the wormhole? Really? <laughs> we actually never have an exact number of the number of changelings over here, so... You know, this is all raw speculation. But I bring this up because they had no problem infiltrating and doing missions up until overt war was declared. And, spoiler alert, from this time on, the only real changeling we'll interact with, other than Odo, of course, and the one exception, Lar, is the female changeling. So I bring all of this up because this kind of false flag operation, which is very Dominion, by the way, it absolutely is the kind of way they operate, trying to manipulate their various opponents against other opponents, this is the kind of thing they'd usually send a changeling to do. They don't. They contact the syndicate to do it. I mention this because I have the private headcanon theory that there's only one changeling on this side of the wormhole at this point in time. Her. Now, I don't know if that's true, but I've thought that for years, and I never really realized why until re-watching the show. It just becomes more and more clear that they're not being utilized in the way that they could be, assuming they were actually on this side of the wormhole. Just food for thought. Another thing to mention, as a side consequence of this, is this, of course, makes the Dominion's usual operating policy a lot more dangerous. False flag operation is very powerful for very obvious reasons, especially against people who already don't like each other. The more likely they are to believe that the other person you're blaming did it, the more likely you are to succeed in the false flag. But um, there's a catch. And that catch is if you are discovered planting a false flag, metaphorically speaking, that is much worse for you. In short, it's a gamble with the possibility of a, a, a small gain and the possibility of a huge loss. Now that's important, because to me that kind of speaks to one of two things. Either the Dominion's desperation, or the Dominion's rigidity. Now I don't buy the former. As I've been pointing out many times, and as the show has been making clear many times, the Dominion's winning. <laughs> they're, they're sitting pretty. I don't think they're desperate. What I do think is that they are not very adaptable. I don't think they know how to really change how they operate. Why would they? They've done this for literally centuries successfully, I might add. As I pointed out earlier, they're used to having overwhelming force and the political backing 
and just the infrastructure and the white and all the other things I've been pointing out because this has come up before. So it feels like to me they're just doing the same old strategies without the same backing they're used to having and that leads to problems like this. As a direct consequence of this, I'm pretty sure this is one of the major reasons why the Klingons decide to swing more in favor of the Anti-Dominion team, basically. Oh, they were already Anti-Dominion team, but remember, Galron was still kind of cagey about coordinated efforts. This actually came up in uh, Favor the Bold. As of this point onwards, the Klingons are going to start doing far more active interactions. It probably, of course, helps that Martok is the Supreme Commander of the Ninth Fleet, which is going to be a joint fleet, but I stand by my statement. In short, the Dominion was trying to break the Klingons away, and all they did was solidify them more as their enemies. Good job. <sighs> oh, sorry, looking at my notes here. I've, I've, I actually don't have many notes, because I, I, this was one that, you know, I know the topics I want to talk about, so I just jotted down a few short little things. For example, I would love to know what would make a Starfleet officer betray the Federation in a fairly severe way to the Orion Syndicate. The The statement that's made in the episode is they paid him a lot of money. Okay. How did that work exactly? You're telling me that a Starfleet officer, who is still a Starfleet officer, is making tons of cash, fungible currency, I guess fungible with currency, and nobody's noticed that there's this one Starfleet officer who has a bunch of money. Remember, Starfleet doesn't pay their people, so any money they get is separate, segregate from that. So you'd think he'd stick out like a sore thumb. So maybe it's in other things, um, you know, worldly pleasures or, or whatever that he gets. Well, that's an interesting... Uh, that's an interesting motive for someone who probably has regular access to replicators and holodecks. I mean, yeah, I know, that's not going to work for everyone, and if it was the norm, then there would be people who would specifically be anti-holodeck and anti-replicator, as there are. But what are you bribing this guy with, and how is he getting away with it, is, is basically my point. It sounds like such a strange flaw in the overall construction of the episode that it almost bothers me. In fact, I was just waiting, first time I saw this, I was just waiting for the episode to reveal that the Starfleet officer was a triple agent. That he was actually, you know, oh yeah, I'll, I'll take your bribe, sure. And doing so in order, I guess that would be double agent, wouldn't he? Agent, uh, sorry, sorry, that is actually double agent, my bad. Uh, that he is a double agent. Oh yeah, I'll take your bribes. <laughs> That's yeah. So guys, they're talking about this. But, again, the episode just seems to play it straight. Like, this is person who is a a traitor. Why? I, I know, I know. I, I, Lord, you're being too idealistic. You're thinking too much of humanity. And I know that not every human is of the Federation, but this guy's not just a human. In fact, we don't even know the, the person's race or gender, I believe, actually. But we know that they're specifically in Starfleet. Anyways, <clears throat> moving over that little problem... There's, <laughs> they mentioned the process of witnessing, which is uh, just another word for what we usually refer to as vetting. I could actually speak at volumes about vetting, because it's a fascinating concept, especially since it's kind of inherently flawed. Now, 
what I mean by that is, if you think at it from a, a surface-level logic, it makes perfect sense. Okay, um, I trust Yoshi. Yoshi! And Yoshi trusts my cup of seltzer. And my cup of seltzer trusts... I'm running out of things. <laughs> trusts, trusts my notepad, right? Now, I don't trust my notepad. Because my notepad just doesn't think the way I do, and doesn't feel the way I feel, and that my notepad is not someone that I would reveal my darkest secrets to. Only you, Yoshi, know where all the bodies are buried. But, I'm sorry. <laughs> He's so cute. <laughs> the point is, vetting as a process of ensuring internal security only really works one step in, basically. But the way they're doing it here is basically however many steps down the line they choose to go. I vet, then he vets, then does she vets, then it vets, right? And that doesn't work for the reasons I just highlighted. This is such an easy-to-understand concept. I mean, I am astonished they use this system. The only way it makes any sense at all to me is if we've got kind of a Sith thing going on here. What I mean by that is they regularly have people who violate, you know, being witnessed, so they regularly kill people who both witness and are witnessed, and they have tons of new recruits, and thus tons of open spaces for upwards mobility. Sith, in other words. You can always get promoted quickly in the Sith Empire because the people above you are getting killed for stupid reasons. <laughs> which, of course, implies that the Syndicate, which, while it certainly has some reach... Um, has basically a bountiful supply of personnel who always are ready to, to join in. Which I suppose is possible, but let's just move on. Because the next thing I want to talk about is... Uh, actually, looking at my notes, I already talked about that. And I already talked about that. And I talked about that. Well, shoot, I'm actually mostly done here. I do really like the bit where the station's just falling apart. I actually got to say, that actually makes perfect sense to me. Really. Because, as has been pointed out by, by many viewers and the show itself, and by viewers I mean you guys, Deep Space Nine is being held together by someone who knows, who, someone who is known and practiced in getting Cardassian and Starfleet technology to work together. And that's O'Brien. Not his team. Him. Now, you could argue that makes him a bad leader because he hasn't been educating his team on exactly how everything works, but the long and the short of it is it does make a degree of sense that he is the focal point of everything working properly. Although, if they ever want to transfer him off station, they're going to have to fix that pronto. Maybe just redo Deep Space Nine? Maybe just replace the damn thing. I mean, come on, you already got industrial-scale rep replicators. Starfleet stations work just fine, just saying... You also have two stations for the t time being while you build the second one. I mean, this is the most important spot during the war, and you're building hundreds of ships on the side. Sure, they can build a station here, too, right? <sighs> what the hell do I know? That would be an interesting twist, wouldn't it? Towards the end of D-Space 9, they actually build D-Space 10, like right next to it, and they start having scenes on the start on the starbase. What would you think if they did that? Honest question. I'm, I'm, now that I'm thinking about it, because obviously from a story perspective, to me that makes perfect sense. But from a, I don't know, from, from a viewer perspective, from a show perspective, I'm not sure what I think of that. So what would you think of that? Anyways, right towards the end, Bilby is astonishingly human. He doesn't turn on O'Brien, even though he could have. 
He doesn't turn, he doesn't betray him, even though he could have. He just, he, he's angry, he's upset, he's hurt, but he reacts very humanly. And in the end, all he asks is, take care of my cat, please. Now, what I find interesting about this is, not only does O'Brien take care of his cat, because of course he does, but in addendum to that, O'Brien also, well, let's just say that this is not the last we've seen of Bilby, kind of. So, once again, recurring elements is just a very major theme of Season 6 and 7. I guess that's basically it. I do like the idea that, I can't remember his name, the intelligence agent sympathizes with O'Brien. Basically, you know, it, it, it's a very common thing to empathize with the person you're trying to betray when you're doing deep cover. You know, it's, it's the same old story. It's, it's, that's that way in other crime dramas as well, so you get the general concept. Anywho, that's all I've got for this week. Next week, we'll talk about something much more terrifying, and I'll have to bring up something much more uncomfortable. Hope to see you then.